with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And it's a double shot of Front Burner today. We have coming up later in the hour, Tuesday morning's Front Burner, with a uh, look at the major parties uh, early on in the federal election. But first off, here is Monday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. So that right there is Verna Bolio, and she is so tired of complaining about her home. This doesn't close very well. About the window smashed years ago that still hasn't been replaced. About the power that goes out if she uses too many appliances at once. We shower like this all the time. I, 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 I can't do this anymore. And about the water, the water that just will not run hot, no matter how long she waits. It's warm enough for a baby. And that's it. You know what I mean? Like when you bath a baby, that's it. Like it's just, like it's 10 year old day and it's been about maybe five minutes. Verna lives in a building owned by Yellowknife's biggest rental company. As much as 80% of the private multi-unit rental housing in Yellowknife and Iqaluit belongs to this one company, Northview Canadian High Yield Residential Fund. This is something that's happening right across the country. You might have heard us talk about it on the show before. Huge companies buying more and more of the housing stock. Tenancy consequences include things like not getting their issues dealt with, rising rents, and yes, rent evictions. When we've talked about this before, it's always been in the context of Toronto and the surrounding areas or Vancouver. But today, I want to focus on a place that might not seem so obvious to many of us, Yellowknife, with two reporters who have been working together on a series of stories for the CBC about what happened when this one real estate company captured this huge segment of the city's rental market. Sydney Cohen is a journalist with CBC North, and John Last is a freelance reporter. Hi, Sydney. Hi, John. Thanks so much for making the time today. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi. So, so John, maybe I'll start with you. It sounds like it's probably pretty hard to find a place in Yellowknife without it being owned by this company, Northview, right? And, and I know, as I just said in the intro, one expert that you talked to put that number as high as as them owning 80% of private rental units. And I just, can you paint a bit more of a picture for me of just what that looks like on the ground there? Yeah, I mean, I moved to Yellowknife uh, nearly four years ago. And just before I did, I spent probably about a month looking for housing in the city. And uh, it was hard. There weren't a lot of places that weren't owned by this company. And even though I went on these Facebook groups where people sort of traded information about vacant apartments, uh, and I saw these warnings that people would give about renting from Northview, I still ended up with a sublet in a Northview building because I just couldn't hmm. find anything else. And that was a common experience with a lot of my colleagues and friends. And I lived there for four years. And even though there were sort of leaks in the ceiling and there was garbage in the hallway and, you know, my balcony door froze shut in the wintertime, uh, I was never able in that whole time to find another place that wasn't wow. hundreds of dollars more a month. And, and so the other places were hundreds of dollars more a month. Why is it that you think the Northview properties were less expensive? 
Oh, I mean, they were just way less expensive. And part of that, I think, is just the scale. But it's hard to say. I mean, you know, a lot of the other places that I looked at, they were as much as $500 more a month. And they were rented out by local landlords, small, small operations with just a few buildings. When you're talking about something the scale of Northview, it's a lot easier to offer stuff at a lower rent. But I shouldn't say, you know, it wasn't cheap rent. I was still paying about $1,300 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Hmm. Okay. about uh, the experiences that other tenants had in in just a minute. But Sydney, I I also understand that Northview provides public housing as well. And and can you just tell me how that works? Yeah. So Northview also houses many public housing tenants like Verna, who we heard up at the top through these agreements with the Northwest Territories Housing Corporation, which is the territory's public housing agency. So in these cases, Northview is the building owner and they rent units to the territory's housing corporation, which in turn rents these units to public housing tenants. Um, the housing corporation rents around 120 units from Northview and Yellowknife and another 46 in Inuvik. And this actually amounts to 87% of the housing corporation's residential leases. Okay, wow. Wow. So, so now that we have a sense of the role that these guys play in the rental market, Sydney, I wonder if you could take me through some of the criticisms you've been hearing. So so at the top, we heard from Verna about these really challenging conditions that she's living in. And, and what did other tenants tell you? Yeah, so we spoke to 16 current and recent Northview tenants on the phone and Zoom and in person. And we talked to nine others over Facebook and email. And a lot of them shared the same complaints. You know, we heard about water damage, heating issues, filthy common areas, like the list goes on. Um, I spoke with George Lassard, who said that in his his apartment kept flooding after rainstorms. And he said during power outages, uh, the key fob system to get into the building would fail. So it effectively locked him out. And in Yellowknife, uh, power outages aren't an uncommon thing, you know, and this can be a really big problem in the winter when it's really, really cold. Um I also spoke with a woman named Julie Normandon. She's a single mom to a toddler. She lives in a townhouse um, in a Northview complex called Bison Estates. And last year, she said the parking lot was just fully coated in ice. And she slipped and fell numerous times. One time she fell while she was holding her sleeping daughter. And she went to the hospital because she thought she broke her arm. Um, and, you know, I visited Julie at her apartment this summer. And the night before I came, someone had thrown a chunk of concrete through her daughter's bedroom window and shattered the glass. And, you know, Northview boarded up the window from the outside, but she told me they didn't fix the shattered glass for more than two weeks. Hmm. And so, you know, that's Julie's experience. Did you hear from, from other tenants about what happens when they bring concerns to Northview? How did they say that Northview responds? Yeah, so... A lot of tenants said that not much happens or like Northview will make these superficial fixes, but the problems just keep cropping up. Um, and Northview also ha- made a policy during the pandemic that it would only deal with what they called emergency work orders. And, you know, Julie, for example, who fell with her daughter, she told Northview about the ice in front of her building and she said nothing was done about it. Like they didn't throw gravel down or anything. Okay. And 
Yeah, and it's even more complicated for Verna and other public housing tenants I spoke to because technically she's supposed to bring maintenance issues to the housing authority first. Um, like Verna told me that her window's been broken for many years and she's had, you know, heating and electrical issues for years. But she says she's complained to everyone and no one is helping her. And I'm just sick of it. And I'm sick of complaining and I'm just a headache to them now. I went through housing, I wrote letters to housing to them, especially about my heat. I have a problem right now. And have you put any of these complaints directly to Northview? What, what do they say about it? Northview uh, told us that they don't comment on individual tenants' matters, um, but they did say that since 2015, they've invested more than $58 million in the North and that they strive for 100% tenant satisfaction 100% of the time, but they recognize that there will always be issues to resolve and ways for them to do better. That is part one of Monday morning's Front Burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. When After 9 continues, it will be part two of Monday morning's edition. Hey world, this is Michael Franti. This is Kanan. Fuho in the dark. Gogo Bordello. Hi, I'm Natasha Atlas. Greetings, this is Daniel Stevens. Justin Adams. This is Steve Riley of the Mamu Playboys. Talvin Singh, you're listening to Free Range Radio. Steve Berlin, Cesar Rosas. We're from Los Lobos and you've discovered music with no borders and no boundaries. This is Cal Coat. The best artists in the world come home to Worldly Canada Radio. Join me each week for a ride on the global side. Worldly Canada Radio, Monday nights at 8, here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Canada West TV passes for the 2021-22 season are now on sale. Early bird pricing is in effect until September 3rd, with Tier 1 early bird pricing, the lowest price for fans, available through August 20th. As sporting events begin to make their return, make sure you're able to watch a full season of Canada West action. Canada West TV, presented by Co-op, registration, pricing, and full package details are available through the Canada West TV link at canadawest.org. Prince George City Council is continuing to pursue options to address the encampments in Prince George in ways that protect the health and safety of everyone. To this end, the city is seeking a court injunction to remove the encampments, which are known to be dangerous and unhealthy. This process is expected to take a few months. In the meantime, Council continues to work with partners, including the province of B.C., Northern Health, B.C. Housing, and Indigenous organizations to address the issue. Forecast from Environment Canada. Showers today with the risk of thunderstorms this afternoon and winds from the south at 20K, a high of 17. Cloudy with a 60% chance of showers tonight. South winds becoming light this evening, a low of 8. For Friday, cloudy with a 30% chance of showers, becoming a mix of sun and cloud late in the afternoon with wind from the west at 20, a high of 20. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of Monday Morning's Front Burner from CBC News. How did Northview get such a huge foothold in the North? Like, how did this all start? Well, in a nutshell, it started in uh, 1986, and it was this project of a former deputy minister and a former teacher. And they got their start mostly with um, government contracts, so building things like schools and sports centers, health centers, RCMP offices in these tiny little communities around the north, places like, you know, Joe Haven. Um, 
And these are jobs that actually require like a very high degree of local knowledge because the construction season is really, really brief in the north. And basically you need all of your materials, all of your workers, all of your equipment to arrive basically on one sea lift on a barge. And while they were doing the work in these places, they realized that there wasn't anywhere to house their workers. Uh, and they started to realize that there was a real shortage of rental housing in the north. So they saw this as an opportunity for investment and they started buying and building apartments across the north. Um, and then in the mid-90s, they merged with this company uh, based in Calgary and went public. And that kind of supercharged the company with all this new investment from across the country. And it really fueled a kind of buying spree around the north and in other sort of small resource-dependent towns across the country. And then... This company, I, I understand it, in the early 2000s turned into something that's become really common now in Canada, right? It's called a real estate investment trust or, or a REIT. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you just explain briefly what that is and how that helped them, I, I guess, get like an even greater foothold here? Right. So real estate investment trusts are this very simple corporate structure where investors can buy a very small piece of a company that rents apartments or commercial property. And in exchange, what they get is a very small piece of the rental income that that company gets. So it's basically a one-for-one exchange. And essentially, that just kind of opened them up, this company Northview, to even more investment income. So they were able to buy more and more and more properties. And to put this into context, they went from owning just a few thousand units, mostly in the north, to tens of thousands of units everywhere across the country in, yeah. in you know, multiple provinces. Right. And so they don't just operate in the north? Not anymore, no. Okay. And then I guess I don't want to fast forward too much here. So let me know if you think I'm skipping over some uh, important plot point, but then in 2020, the company got bought, right, by two mm-hmm. even bigger companies, Kingset Capital and Starlight Investments. And and this was uh, a pretty big deal in the real estate world, right? Yeah, it was actually one of Canada's biggest real estate deals in history up to that point. And when all the dust settled, it was worth about 49 billion dollars. And in in that deal, the company sort of merged and it involved 27,000 residential units and 1.2 million commercial square feet. It's these quantities that it's almost kind of hard to wrap your head around. But what I found really interesting about that is that there wasn't a lot of commentary on it, even as the company was sort of consolidating this control over a huge portion of Yellowknife. Starlight, I, I think that this name is probably going to be familiar to a lot of tenants across the country and, and to listeners of the show as well. We've talked about them on our show when one of their buildings was moving to evict a tenant in Toronto, a Syrian refugee during COVID. And in March of last year, uh, tenants at another one of their buildings in, in Parkdale in Toronto started withholding partial rent because they called unfair living conditions and as we've also talked about more broadly, this is all part of, of, of what is being called the financialization of housing, right? Like big, big companies. I, I believe Starlight has more than 20 billion in assets, um, consolidating the rental market. And this is, this is now a, a, a fairly common model in Canada across the border in the United States as well. And, and there's been a lot of criticism that tenants are now dealing with this totally faceless entity that is more interested in sort of maximizing their profits. 
not like a mom and pop landlord. And so how does Northview sort of defend the critiques of their bigness in Yellowknife? Well, they wrote to us in an email that they reject the narrative that their presence in the North is a, quote, reflection of dominance. But the company does advertise itself to investors as the largest private sector residential landlord in the Northwest Territories in Nunavut. Um, now, Northview also says they're in the business of providing essential housing uh, in a place that has a major housing shortage, which is the Northwest Territories. And that also includes... As as we've heard public housing and and they and they say they proudly employed like over their history they've proudly employed hundreds of northerners and housed thousands of residents in dozens of communities across the northwest territories in Nunavut and that they've contributed millions of dollars to the economies of the communities in which they operate okay I want to talk about the the government response to this. So I know there's this former MLA who sort of seems to, I don't know if regret is the right word, but regret that the government of the Northwest Territories didn't do more to address this issue. And John, can you tell me about what she told you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spoke to this woman, Wendy Bissaro. She she was a Yellowknife MLA from 2007 to 2015. And this was kind of the key period where Northview was doubling the number of units it managed in the territory. Uh, And she said she didn't really notice uh, this company acquiring a bigger and bigger percentage of the territory's rental properties. I think it was a concern, but it wasn't something that we talked about in terms of, as a government, what are we going to do? I was not seeing that they were going to take over 80% of the market. I guess I didn't see them as this sort of landlord out to grab everything. I'm a bit naive in that regard, I think. And she sort of said that she felt naive in retrospect about the whole thing. She didn't really expect that this company was going to grow to this kind of size. But this was actually something that I heard from a lot of politicians from that time. They just really didn't see this as a public policy issue that government should have to deal with. And they didn't really foresee how one company's growing control could create a bad situation for renters down the line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking about REITs, like these were pushed by governments, right? Like... Right. In the 19, in the 1990s and 2000s, the Canadian government, the CMHC, they were really pushing this as a new investment model because they had seen how it had been so successful for investors and people building housing in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, Sydney, is there anything being done now? What are we hearing now about about what's happening in Yellowknife? Yeah, not a whole lot. There's one Yellowknife MLA, his name's Ryland Johnson. He's kind of made this his issue. Um, he says the government needs to do more. He says they should stop renting from Northview and stop, you know, being the anchor tenant in all of these buildings that, you know, belong to this huge Southern landlord. We tried to get interviews with the infrastructure minister, the housing minister. Neither would talk to us. The finance minister did acknowledge that the territorial government has influence over the rental market and that, you know, they're reviewing their procurement policy or their procurement process right now. But, you know, the territory spends more than 20 million on its leases with Northview and Kingset each year. And up here, that's actually a lot of money. And Um, does that all come from public housing or are they leasing other things as well? No, that includes office space as well. Um, 
Johnson, the MLA, he says that all the money that the government is spending on its leases with Northview could be going to local landlords, you know, or uh, indigenous development corporations, like anyone really who will keep that money in the territory. Um, but, you know, I will say like, at least on the affordable housing side, politicians, I, I think are taking more notice now. And the federal government, you know, has recently put some money into affordable housing in the territory. They gave, for example, $19 million recently to the Yellowknife Denny First Nation to build 19 new affordable homes um, in Dilo and Dada, which are two communities really close to Yellowknife. Okay. wonder before we go today if we can zoom out a little bit like just for the regular person living in Yellowknife who wants an affordable apartment but but an apartment where their needs are are met right where the windows are intact Mm -hmm. and and there's heat when it's cold what are the concerns here about what all of this ultimately can mean for, for the future of housing in the north yeah it's interesting I mean I guess to sort of Put yourself in the shoes of a northerner. You know, anytime one company controls so much of something that's so essential to your health and happiness, like housing, it makes people a little nervous. And now that the holdings that this company has in the north, they're just such a small part of this bigger company that, as you said, you know, it has $20 billion in assets. That just swamps any concern that northerners might have. It's just such a small piece. But, you know, also at the same time, for Northerners, that's kind of a familiar feeling to be on the edge of something that's much bigger than they are and to have this feeling that, you know, we have real concerns, but they just might be drowned out in the face of this gigantic company. Hmm. Guys, that was that was super interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So before we go today, rental housing came up on the federal election campaign over the weekend. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says his party will provide $5,000 in rental support for families if his party wins. That would immediately help families that are struggling with that increased cost that Justin Trudeau is allowed to happen. Singh says that he'd pay that rental subsidy by increasing taxes on big corporations like Amazon. He also said that he'd, quote, take big money out of Canada's housing market. The other major parties have also been talking about this issue, and I'm sure we'll hear more soon. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau says he aims to eliminate all GST on new capital investments in affordable rental housing, and Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole plans to encourage Canadians to invest in rental homes by letting them defer the capital gains tax when rental property is sold. We're definitely going to be digging into the analysis of these proposals and more over the next several weeks, so I hope that you will stay tuned. But that is all for today. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thank you so much for listening to Front Burner. We'll talk to you tomorrow. That is Monday morning's Front Burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM. Front Burner also available through the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 returns, we will have Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News, a look at the major parties early on in this federal election that's coming up.
Minds in Motion is a weekly program provided online for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each session has a 30-minute fitness video followed by 45 minutes of social time. Sessions are offered Tuesday through Thursday from 10 to 11.30, as well as Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday from 1 to 2.30. For more information or to register, email info.helpline at alzheimerbc.org. Theatre Northwest would like to sell you a ticket to nothing. Theatre Northwest relies on live audiences to provide the funds needed to continue bringing top-notch performances to the city, and they haven't had that ability recently. Purchasing a ticket to nothing will help support the local theatre group. Your ticket to nothing is $25 and is eligible for a tax receipt as a donation. To purchase your ticket to nothing or for more information, visit theaternorthwest.com. Every not-for-profit board of directors needs to know how to effectively set their executive director up for success. On September 28th, Vantage Point's Supporting Your Executive Director workshop will explore performance management and creating a strong relationship between the ED and the board. The half-day workshop looks at clarity around expectations and evaluation processes, meaningful feedback and support, and creating an overall healthier work environment. Support your executive director, September 28th from 5.30 to 8.30 via Zoom. For more information or to register, visit thevantagepoint.ca. In accordance with the most recent provincial health order, all visitors to civic facilities must wear masks while at indoor public spaces. Employees and visitors who are 12 and over not wearing masks will be denied entry or asked to leave the facility regardless of their vaccination status. This order does not apply to visitors with medical exemptions, people who cannot wear a mask, or cannot put on or remove a mask without the assistance of others. For further information about the provincial health order, please visit the links page at CI. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is the first segment of Tuesday Morning's Front Burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Pusso. back from some summer holidays and maybe you've taken some holidays too or maybe you just haven't really tuned into this federal election campaign yet you would not be alone but the thing is it's fully underway now in fact election day is already less than a month away so today to catch us up on what the polls are saying and how the major parties campaigns are going so far we've called up poll whisperer the man behind cbc's poll tracker and the founder of the writ.ca eric grenier and cbc ad issue panelist althea rush eric althea thank you very much for being here oh thanks for having us Eric, I I think we'll start with you. I think it's fair to assume maybe that Justin Trudeau called this election because he thought he and his party would benefit from it, right? And so now that we're a week and change into this thing, I understand the polling landscape has really been shifting. And I wonder if you could explain to me how so. Yeah, I think going into this campaign, the liberals thought that this was maybe their best shot to have a majority government or at least uh, better than it might be maybe next year when the opposition could decide to to force an election. And the polls going into the campaign were looking pretty good for the Liberals. They had a lead in in every single poll. They were ahead by big margins in places like Ontario, Quebec, and BC. And the numbers that we've seen so far out of this first week, they do suggest that that Liberal support is softening, that the Conservative 
vote is coming back. Uh, a lot of the pre-campaign polls had the Conservatives at really historically low numbers, and it looks like a lot of their supporters are coming back to the fold, and that's closing the gap between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And uh, the chances for majority right now for the Liberals, not particularly good. It is still early, but uh, certainly the trend line is not going in the right direction for them. One question I have is that I know polls can be fickle sometimes. And and at this stage in the game, I I wonder if there's anything you think we should keep in mind when we hear poll numbers and and variations like this sort of bandied about. Yeah, it is still early. And, uh, you know, engagement and people's attention spans are not as high as they'll be later on in the campaign. So you do have to take the polling with a a little bit more of a, a caution that some of the shifts that we might see from day to day aren't going to be really important things that are actually happening. Uh, Right now in this campaign, we have a few pollsters that are putting out numbers every single day. And those numbers are just going to go back and forth uh, naturally. And it's not necessarily a sign that the campaign is having an impact on on each party support. But Mm -hmm. uh, certainly at this stage, you know, the numbers are really close for the Liberals and the Conservatives. So when you have two parties that are more or less tied in the polls, you're going to have some polls that are going to have the Liberals ahead. You're going to have some polls that have the Conservatives ahead. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's not always going to be a sign of, of a new trend that's developing. I think it's also accurate to say, to kind of loop back to your earlier point, it's not just an assumption that the liberals engineered this election, asked for this election because they thought they could get a majority. Um, it's uh, a fact. They believed that if they did not go now, that they would have to wait probably more than a year. And then who knows what happens in a year. A lot of unknowns. It's better to go in, in their minds when you're in charge of the timing than when the opposition is in charge of the timing. At the same time, though, their own polling before the campaign kicked off had them just barely in majority territory. So just just around the 170 seat mark, according to their own pollster. So it wasn't a sure thing to go now. They just felt like this was the, the less risky of the alternatives. And the other thing I'll say is that both the Liberals and the NDP say that in their own focus groups, one of the kind of the wild card factor was most people didn't really know who Aaron O'Toole was and they didn't have a negative or positive impression of him. They just didn't have an impression of him. So there was always the risk both parties knew this, that Aaron O'Toole would put uh, his best foot forward and that Canadians would like what they see and that that could really change the direction of the campaign. Now, I think it's too early to say that that's what we're witnessing, but certainly I think the Conservatives had a very good first week. then about the conservatives first week uh, what did it what did it look like what stood out to you well i'd say it started off on the wrong footing um the prime minister when he came out of the governor general's to an- announce uh the election uh kind of threw a, a shot across the bow on the vaccination issue suggesting that you know not all the political parties share the same opinion on mandatory vaccination whether that's having all of your candidates vaccinated or having all the passengers on planes and trains vaccinated or having members of the public service be vaccinated. And Aaron O'Toole was unable to answer the question, especially the question about his own candidates at a press conference with reporters. And then that was clarified later in a late evening statement to reporters and then an email directive to candidates um, two days later saying that they had to be vaccinated or else take a daily test. I expect my team to follow all the public health measures in this Justin Trudeau fourth wave pandemic. 
that includes expectations with respect to, to vaccines or an expectation to daily rapid testing. But I think that that mandatory vaccination question kind of got a lot of conservatives, at least the conservatives I spoke with, scared. A lot of progressive conservatives, conservatives in Eastern Canada were like, what? Like, that's an easy question. Why weren't we able to answer that? But it was like a rocky start. But then he seemed to get the train back on the tracks. I think releasing the conservative platform on day two was really smart because of COVID, we expect a lot of voters will cast a ballot by mail. So having your platform early is really smart. It gives your candidates something to talk about at the doors. And people who choose to cast a ballot by mail have all that information at their fingertips earlier on in the campaign. And then I think the last thing I'll mention that was really smart of them to do was to get ahead of the abortion question. They had to know the liberals were going to make hay of this issue because Frankly, um, the conservative leader, when he ran for the, his own party's leadership, Curry favored with the social conservative. He courted their second ballot support. Um, he promised to respect their conscience rights. He gave his MPs a free vote on abortion question, on conversion therapy, on those social issues that are important to a large part of his caucus. And even allowed, you know, Kathy Wickenthal, a Saskatchewan MP, to bring forward a piece of legislation that would restrict a woman's right to have an abortion. And two thirds of his caucus voted in favor of that bill. And so he had to know that that was going to be a big issue. And he announced it in Quebec, where we know the party had huge roadblocks in the last election campaign when Andrew Scheer was unable to answer the question if he was pro-choice during a French language debate. Scheer dodging whether he personally supports abortion, but today a big shift. I am personally pro-life, uh, but I've also made the commitment that as leader of this party, it is my responsibility to ensure uh, that we do not reopen this debate. And so he came out and he just had a 50-minute statement saying, I'm pro-choice. Well, as you know, I'm pro-choice and I, I want to make sure that access for women to those services are available across the country. It's an important right I will not only defend. I think we can also defend conscience rights for our incredible men and women on the front lines in our healthcare system. Basically, I guarantee that a conservative government will respect a woman's right to choose and also Quebecers. I believe in climate change. He didn't take any questions, though the conservatives had like a clean message out for at least half a day before reporters were able to question him on really what that meant. Um, but I think that was really um, smart and strategic in the way that they were trying to define Aaron O'Toole before the Liberals or the NDP could define him. I wonder if I could bring you in here. You know, how do you think his position on abortion, his position on, on climate change is going to vibe with his whole party? I think it is going to have some impact on, on how his own party supporters and members and uh, donors feel about the party. The question is whether it's going to really have an impact on their vote. Uh, we have seen that support for other parties like the People's Party looks to be a bit higher than it was in the last campaign. But it's an open question whether those people are actually going to stick with those parties or will come back to the fold. Uh, I think what Aaron O'Toole is doing here is he is trying to present himself as more of a progressive conservative, uh, certainly not the candidate that he presented himself as during the conservative leadership race last year. And I think one of the issues and one of the weaknesses that, that he has, the vulnerabilities, is that while he is saying these things, uh, a lot of his own party, a lot of his own caucus uh, aren't on side with him. And we've seen votes in the House of Commons that showed, uh, in some cases, a majority of the Conservative caucus voting in ways that 
do not line up with where Aaron O'Toole is right now. So campaigns are very leader focused. So the fact that Aaron O'Toole is saying this might work for a lot of centrist voters who are considering mm-hmm. both the conservatives and the liberals. Uh, but there is the opportunity for the other parties to point out that while Aaron O'Toole might leave these things, uh, a lot of his own MPs will not be voting alongside with him on some of these issues. I think what Eric brings up is a good point, but it's not we're not going to hear it from MPs and candidates who have a chance of winning. If we hear uh, dissatisfaction with the way Aaron O'Toole is redirecting the Conservative Party, it will come from activists and donors and, you know, in the French, we call them les militants, like the people knocking on doors because conservative MPs just want to win. And a lot of them actually support the direction in which Aaron O'Toole is going. And they've been uncomfortable with his kind of the dance he was having with the further right part of his of his party, if I can say it that way. And when things are going well in an election campaign, you are not going to hear conservative MPs complain about the direction. I would be I would be shocked if we hear that. I certainly am not hearing it from the MPs I'm speaking to. Or the candidates, I should say at this point, the candidates who are running for the incumbents I'm hearing from. <laughs> so that might bode well for him in, in the weeks. Ahead, um, but if we could just loop back to the liberals and talk about how their campaign is going so far. Althea, you mentioned that the conservatives have released their platform. It's probably worth noting here that the liberals have not, even though they called this election. And so what has the start of the liberal campaign looked like so far? Well, I would say it's not unusual for a political party not to release a campaign in the first week of of the election like that. It's unusual that the others have. The NDP basically recycled their 2019 campaign and even released it before the writs had been written. Even with such a short election? Yeah, I mean, what they're basically running on is their budget and this extra stuff that we are waiting to hear from. I would say that the difficulty on the liberal side, well, there's two difficulties. Um, Afghanistan has overshadowed the liberals' ability to get their campaign missions out. I don't want to go into details, uh, uh, operational details right now, but I can assure you we have given uh, the authorizations for the folks on the ground to make the right decisions to help as many people as possible, given the risks of the situation. And I guess this is one of the drawbacks of being the government and having crises come at you that require actually a whole of, I mean, you're thinking about immigration, global affairs, D&D, like it's a massive project that is going on in Kabul and that the government has to be somewhat distracted. But also the questions at Justin Trudeau, the liberal leaders press conference every day are about this humanitarian crisis and this international relations problem that is happening and not about what the liberals are proposing that morning. So that's been a difficulty for them. And then the other thing is, frankly, they have not answered I think, well, the question of why are we even having this election? Like, what is this great build back better that we haven't heard about yet? Because everything they suggested in their budget, for example, well, it got the support of the opposition parties and they could have kept going. So what is this great big idea, this great big project that you want voters to support? Why are we having this campaign? In the life of our country, we are facing a moment of some very, very big decisions about how we get through the final months of this pandemic, but even more importantly, how we build a better future for everyone. Those are the decisions we're taking right now. That's why we need Calgarians and Canadians across the country to step up.
That is part one of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM's After Nine. In a moment, part two. Nominate your favorite BC craft brewery for a chance at the BC Ale Trail Brewery Experience Award. Think about what you love about our local brewers, then vote for your favorite. Your vote will get you into a draw for one of two grand prize weekends, or you could win a $100 gift certificate to the BC brewery of your choice and a BC Ale Trail Deluxe Swag Pack valued at $200. Cast your vote at bcaletrail.ca. Entry deadline is September 15th. Advocate Life Celebrate Life Gala is set for Monday, November 1st. This year's live event will feature guest speaker Dr. Anthony Lavatino. Early bird rates for table sponsors are available through Monday, but they're going quick as it shapes up to be one of their best galas yet. The Prince George venue is yet to be announced, but full details and sponsorships are available at CelebrateLifeGala.ca. Advocate Life Celebrate Life Gala, Monday, November 1st, live in Prince George. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is offering their Healthy Leader Training Sessions for the Northwest Northeast Region, September 27th and 28th. Being offered via Zoom, the sessions will be filled with learning, movement and laughter and are open to all community members who want to deliver an Indigenous Run, Walk or Honor Your Health Challenge program. Registration and full details are available through ispark.ca. The iSpark Healthy Leader Training Sessions for the Northwest Northeast, September 27th and 28th via Zoom. Forecast from Environment Canada, showers today with the risk of thunderstorms this afternoon and winds from the south at 20K, a high of 17. Cloudy with a 60% chance of showers tonight, south winds becoming light this evening, a low of 8. For Friday, cloudy with a 30% chance of showers, becoming a mix of sun and cloud late in the afternoon with winds from the west at 20, a high of 20. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is the second segment from Tuesday Morning's Frontburner from CBC News. Eric, I heard you um, on your podcast, uh, The Red, with our other friend of the pod, Aaron Wary, calling this the, the Seinfeld election, the ele- an election about nothing. Well, yeah, I don't know if actually people are calling it that. I did. But I think that's one of the issues for the Liberals is that they did launch this campaign without a very clear reason for a lot of voters why it was necessary to reelect government and what they need, uh, you know, the kind of mandate they need from voters to move forward since they were able to more or less do what they wanted to do before. And I think that is something that we're seeing with the liberal campaign is that it doesn't seem as sharp as uh, maybe the conservatives or mm-hmm. the new Democrats. And when you see what happened in, in Nova Scotia in the provincial election there. CBC is projecting a progressive conservative win here in Nova Scotia tonight. And that is a massive upset in Nova Scotia politics. The Liberals went into this election buoyed by a strong pandemic performance. But early on, Ian Rankin's momentum evaporated as the opposition came out hard. PC leader Tim Houston. Voters aren't going to reelect government just as a sign of appreciation for what they did over the last year. And uh, I, I think for the Liberals, we're already hearing that they're shifting a little bit their focus in terms of how they're going to uh, prosecute the next couple of weeks, maybe. But uh, having a much clearer argument as to why it's really important to reelect the Liberal government and not elect an Aaron O'Toole government, uh, I think we're going to have to hear more, more, more of that from Justin Trudeau if we're going to see the Liberal numbers get a little bit better over the next couple of weeks. Okay. Uh, uh, we've talked about the Liberals and the Conservatives, uh, but I, I do want to spend a little bit of time before we go talking about the NDP. Eric, what can you tell us about the NDP's position in this election so far? 
Well, I'm starting it in a much better spot than in 2019. At the beginning of the 2019 campaign, we were wondering if the NDP was going to uh, manage official party status. Uh, instead, they're starting this campaign somewhere around 19, 20% support. They seem to have some momentum going into the campaign. It's a question of whether they're continuing that momentum over the first week. Uh, but for the New Democrats, what's interesting about the focus that they've had, it is about sending more NDP MPs to Ottawa to have that balance of power in the House of Commons in a minority government. Mm-hmm. And Althea, I wonder if you could just elaborate for me on, on who you think the NDP is appealing to here, and I guess potentially taking votes from in this election. Uh, young voters and women under 35, two key demographics that the Liberals are very worried about. Um, young voters help basically give Justin Trudeau's majority government in 2015. Um, and women under 35 who traditionally have voted for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals um, now are favoring the New Democrats. And that has Liberals quite worried. Um, I agree with everything that Eric said about the NDP's um, strategy, although you will hear Jagmeet Singh still say that he's running to be prime minister. But Unlike 2019, they actually have a lot more money and they plan to spend a lot more money during this election campaign to support the leader and to be able to kind of boost him if the campaign seems to be going well. And that's something that they felt like they were unable to do in 2019 when after the English language debate, um, Jagmeet Singh seemed to be connecting with voters in a way that he hadn't prior to the debates, but they didn't have any funds to kind of support him with an app campaign on the air or on social media you know, traditionally, they want to be the party that pushes the liberals to the left, like they're the actual progressive party, they would argue. And they have a record to run on this time, which is different than in the last few campaigns. They can point to things that they feel they had a tangible impact in delivering for Canadians. So I think that does help them. Right. Can you give me an example of, of what he says they've been able to push the liberals to do? I think sort of governing through the pandemic. Yeah. The, well, three things. The wage subsidy, they say that they were the ones who, I mean, truthfully, I think it was going to increase because of stakeholder engagement on that issue. And the conservatives were also pushing them, but they they argue that they helped the liberals boost that, that they helped increase the CERB by basically $1,000 to $2,000, that they helped bring in a sick leave. People know that when they were down and out or when they were struggling or times were tough, New Democrats fought. Thank you. Thank you. The Democrats fought to bring in more CERB to people so they could stay in their homes and put food on the table. We fought to increase the wage subsidy to keep millions of people in their jobs. We fought- I mean, we saw them on the sick leave question, probably more than anything else, really hold that out as a carrot. Like if the Liberals wanted their vote in order to survive, then they had to agree to this. Um, and then the Liberals did push for it with the provincial premiers. So th- that is, that's not insignificant, I think, for the NDP. It doesn't, it helps voters on the left who feel like sometimes, well, if you vote for the NDP, are you wasting your vote? Now the New Democrats have a powerful argument to say, you know, no, your vote counts for something. Right. Okay. Guys, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jane. Thank you. Before we go today, an update from Afghanistan. On Monday, the federal government confirmed for the first time that Canada's special forces are operating outside the airport in Kabul, working to bring people to evacuating aircrafts. We're following this story very closely, and we'll keep you posted. But that is all for today. Thanks so much for listening to Front Burner, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.
And that is Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You're listening to 93.1 CFIS-FM. Back to wrap this morning's edition of After 9 in a moment. Ask an Expert, the final event of Vantage Point's Youth Network series, is September 23rd. Free for youth in the not-for-profit sector, you'll hear from a fantastic panel of experienced not-for-profit professionals. Ask an Expert will be a celebration of everything learned during this event series through one final Q&A. Ask an Expert, virtually hosted Thursday, September 23rd, from 4 to 6. For full details or to register, visit thevantagepoint.ca. The Legion Corner is now open. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 4 to 7. Stop by for a meal or call ahead at 250-562-1292 to pick up. Also backed by popular demand is the Friday and Saturday night meat draws. Tickets are just $2 each with five draws each night to win gift cards for Homesteader Meats. Know your limit. Play within it. That's the Legion Corner, now open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 4 to 7 at 1116 6th Avenue, downtown Prince George. Two Rivers Art Gallery is hiring a community arts activator. Reporting to the Director of Learning and Engagement, the community arts activator will be an enthusiastic and creative individual who will work as part of a collaborative and community-focused public arts programming team. It's a crucial role in connecting the public to experiential and educational learning opportunities at the gallery. That's Two Rivers Gallery hiring a full-time community arts activator. More information and application details are available at tworiversgallery.ca. Staying hydrated during hot weather is important, especially during extreme heat. The healthiest way to stay hydrated is by making water your drink of choice. While other beverages can be loaded with calories, sodium, sugars, or saturated fats, straight water is the natural alternative to quench your thirst and rehydrate. Looking for a little flavor? Add a mix of fruit and herbs. More information on hydrating with healthy drink options is available through the Canada Food Guide at Canada.ca. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And I forgot to mention, coming up tonight on Front Burner uh, at 11, we will have this morning's edition, which is uh, a fourth wave for whom? That's the title. Uh, Epidemiologists are warning of rising caseloads and a dangerous fourth wave of COVID-19, just when many people thought life was finally getting back to normal. Uh, This week, several provincial governments changed their pandemic policies in response course, right here in British Columbia, but also Manitoba brought back indoor mask mandates. Uh, so tonight on Front Burner at 11, uh, an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa explains how bad the fourth wave could get and how he hopes uh, we can mitigate it. Mm. So that's... Uh, yeah, tonight's edition. Uh, across the province, 698 new COVID cases yesterday for a total active caseload of 5,356. Uh, in the north, 45 new cases, so we're up to 322 now. Uh, seven hospitalized, seven in critical care. So again, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's all seven are, or if there's 14 total, because the numbers are different sometimes. I Anyway, uh, moving on to stuff a little less serious, but COVID-related. Saints and Sinners Tour 
that was supposed to go November the 7th in Prince George, big concert, uh, they've canceled that. And ticket uh, refunds are now available. If you paid by credit card, they'll automatically, it would have already been, uh, charged back to your card. So, uh, that's, that refund would have been taken care of. Uh, but if you have an actual ticket that you purchased with the debit or, or cash, then you have to go to the CN Center box office to get a refund. And they started uh, doing refunds, I think yesterday was yesterday, the first day that you could get them. Um, senior men's baseball action there into the playoffs. And I was, uh, just dialing up the, the results from last night and well, they don't have them on their website yet. <laughs> <laughs> Darn you guys. They're not up yet. I'll, I'll have to go to their Facebook page. Maybe that's the thing with Facebook is a lot of people, a lot of organizations now just ignore the normal. You would normally go to their, their website but now they just post it on Facebook and, and not always easy to find the information you want because you get used to going to the website. Uh, what else we got going on? Oh, uh, interesting conference that actually started last year during the pandemic. It's uh, called LEAP, and it's a conference for women put on by the Community Futures, uh, Community Futures Fraser Fort George, uh, last year, of course, it was, it was all virtual. Uh, this year, they are doing, well, they plan on it being, uh, a, com- a combined deal, so in person or virtually, and that'll be taking place October 26th, 27th, and 28th. Uh, all the details are available through the Community Futures website, cfdc.bc.ca. Now, I found the, um, Facebook page for Senior Men's Baseball, and a quick look, I don't know if they've even put it in. Well, I guess, um, yeah, they didn't, uh, they haven't even updated that, so I don't know who won last night. And it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, maybe I'll have to go to the Citizen. (laughs) They, They might have the information in their sports reporting. Or show up at the ballpark tonight and find out find who's out. who's winning and who's losing. They're doing a double knockout with the final game or games. There might be two at the end, uh, taking place September the 1st. So that's next Wednesday. Um, well, if they need a second game, I imagine it'll be the, the following night, so the Thursday. Now that, of course, being baseball, is weather-dependent. And, uh, looks like, well, today's forecast still says it's gonna get pretty damp out there. It's, it's, we've had a little bit of rain this morning, but it's supposed to be, uh, apparently this afternoon we're gonna get it. Yeah, and right through the night, so that might actually delay a few games and push things back a little bit, which is fine. I, I'd rather watch, uh, watch ball in the sun anyway. Well, absolutely. Yeah, and when it gets cold and wet as it is, I was trying to wear shorts right through the end of August, and I gave up. Yesterday was, well, it was too cold in here because of the stupid air conditioning. Yeah, air conditioning works. And I looked good. at the forecast, and, and uh, I think our high today was a uh, predicted high of 17 with rain, and I thought, yeah, no, I'm so not going to. 14 with the cool, yeah. Yeah, so. 
All right. So that's uh, that'll be a wrap for today's show. Uh, tomorrow we will have the Friday morning edition of Front Burner from CBC News, uh, plus the fi- Friday panel, which will have their uh, take on uh, week two of the federal election. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS. SFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcast.